If you will, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke once again. Uh, We have made our way into uh, chapter 18, and we'll be looking at verses 15 through 17 here this morning. Again, the Gospel of Luke chapter 18, and we'll begin in just a moment in verse 15. Uh, This particular episode... Uh, from the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is certainly very well known and rightly so. Uh, We find it uh, in all three of what we call the synoptic gospels that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Each of them give us uh, a record of this particular uh, encounter Uh, in uh, the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so all three of them, and as is the case today, the Gospel writer Luke, they each tell us what happened and what was said. It's very straightforward, not very hard to understand. But as we begin to think about what I believe are the timeless implications for what Jesus did and what he said, that's where the difficulty begins. We have to ask our question, or some questions, and the first thing is, of course, this happened and these things were said. So then, what do these things mean? How do they apply what are the implications, I guess most specifically and more importantly, what are the implications of what Jesus said and what Jesus did for us here at North Clay at this time on this day? And so let's look at this and think about all of the issues that flow out of this particular encounter in which we see the very tenderness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, on display as He ministers to the children that were brought to Him. As we think about, do not hinder them. Read with me, if you will. Now, they were bringing even infants to Him that He might touch them. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, them to him saying let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God truly I say to you whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it pray with me if you will this morning Father, we thank you for the goodness of your grace, for the truth and the power of your gospel, for your saving testimony of yourself, for our salvation. May your truth be spoken with conviction and with clarity. May your spirit apply these things to our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I suspect most of you are familiar 
with a particular popular soft drink that likes to label itself as the uncola, that, that it likes to be known as that which is unlike the other soft drinks. And so as we come to uh, the Gospel of Luke here, as I kind of reflect back each week as I prepare, I kind of thumb back through and try to pick up on a flow. This is an unsection of the Gospel of Luke. It's very un. It, it, it kind of begins in chapter 17, verse 7, and we could probably even go back further. The reality that we are but unworthy slaves. Chapter 17, verse 11, the tragedy of the nine lepers who were unthankful. The unthinkable conversion of the thankful Samaritan. The unexplainable nature of the kingdom. The irony of the unjust judge. The truth of the unimaginable convert, namely the tax collector. Here today, the unacceptable behavior of the disciples, the unexpected rejection of the rich young ruler, the unfathomable prophecy of Jesus' death, the unexplainable display of the power of God in the healing of the blind man, and then the unlikely conversion of that little tax collector whose name was Zacchaeus. And so again, uh, the unchapters of the gospel of Luke. And I'm sure we could go on and on. And there is a, a literary technique, there is a, a device that is utilized by uh, writers. Uh, sometimes you can call it irony. That is that the story turns out differently than you would expect it to. That's what all of those situations are. They turn out in an unlikely way, in an ironic kind of way. Anytime I think of irony, I have to go back to the early 20th century author O. Henry, uh, who wrote uh, noted short stories such as The Gift of the Magi. But my favorite, you might expect, if you can remember your sophomore literature from high school, is The Ransom of Red Chief, in which the tables get turned on the kidnapper of a, of a young child uh, named Johnny, who, by the way, lived in the great state of Alabama, according to the story. I think there might be a lot of Johnnies maybe running around the state of Alabama. And even the, probably the idea that spawned movies such as the Home Alone series kind of flow out of what was originally written by the writer O. Henry. So again, things just simply not turning out as you would have anticipated them to be. And again, it communicates truth, that, that use of irony communicates truth with a a bit of a punch, okay? Well, this is what I'm thinking, I'm tracking, I'm tracking. Oh, wait a minute. I was wrong about how this was going to work its way out, how it was going to conclude. So as we look at this short episode, this pericope, if you want to use a more technical term, uh, here found uh, in uh, Luke 18, let's begin with what I call the unexpected reception. Unexpected by the disciples, unexpected by the readers. One of the things that I've noted in our working through the Gospel of Luke is that it is in this section that Jesus is well aware he is approaching 
his appointed destiny. He knows he is traveling to Jerusalem for a particular reason. That he is going to be brutalized and ultimately condemned and placed on a cross upon which he will die for our sins. The, the, that which is foundational to the gospel is the accomplishment of Christ on the cross. It is the essential of Christianity. And so Jesus is on his way to do that for which he entered the world to accomplish. And, and at times you see him being more than a bit preoccupied. That, that sometimes his response uh, to those who uh, approach him is a bit terse. That, that, that he is moving and he is single-minded and he is, he is very focused on that which he has come to do. And so it's very unexpected that Jesus has all of these things on his mind, knowing that he is in a, a season of, of conflict in which the, the, uh, the religious leaders are highly hostile to him and their antagonism continues to rise, that he would stop and spend some of his valuable time ministering to these children. And, and you can see uh, the disciples are quite shocked by this. Hey, you know, we... We're about founding the kingdom. We're in a rush to get to Jerusalem to get our offices set up. You know, each of us are going to have very prominent places in the kingdom of God. And so we've got to get at it that you would bother the Messiah with your child is unacceptable. It's incomprehensible. But yet, they were shocked as they were bringing to Jesus these children, even infants, it says. The, uh, the, the, the Greek word is uh, brephos or brephe. It is used of everything from the uh, embryo in the womb or the, the unborn child in, in the womb to up through toddlers. It's kind of a, a broad term. And probably there are all different ages of children that were both probably toddling, walking up to Jesus, and their parents were bringing these children uh, to Jesus and that they knew that Jesus was unique and it, it really wasn't that uncommon in Judaism for uh, noted rabbis to uh, take time to pronounce a blessing upon uh, the children. And so uh, they know that there's something about Jesus that he might share something of himself uh, with their children. And, and we're told that, that he might uh, touch them. Now, this is kind of interesting, and, and sometimes we, when we have parallel accounts, uh, this is found in Matthew 19, Mark 10, uh, sometimes we stay in one, and sometimes we kind of compare them. And here's a place where Mark tells us in his account, just a nuance, just a, again, to, they're seeing these things together, but they're, they're evaluating them through their own personal lenses. We're told he took them in his arms and he blessed them laying hands on them. Now what that communicates to me is that Jesus was not in a hurry. That, that there's probably more than a handful of kids that would come because the crowds at times were fairly large. And so Jesus is going, bless you all, now hit it. Hey, I love you, now move on. Jesus took time 
with each individual child. He held them. He laid hands on them. He, he blessed them. He, he conferred upon them his approval for their approaching him. And I, 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 such a beautiful picture of our great and good shepherd and his tender compassion for even the youngest of the sheep. And so we, we see him, he is ministering, he is engaged. And instead of being too busy of too, himself saying, guys, listen, there's a bigger agenda at hand and you don't understand what I've actually come to accomplish and I'd love to spend the time with you, but I need to move on. Something a, a fellow pastor told me years ago, I tried to live by it. Time is never wasted when you're spending it with your people. Doesn't matter what age they are. But your time is never wasted spending it with your people. And so Jesus was engaged. He was invested in these children. Let's look at the second portion of this. We see on display in these disciples the unacceptable attitude. We're still in verse 15. Second sentence there. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. I think it's a bit unclear as to whether we're talking about the parents or older siblings or whoever it was that were bringing them or if, he was, if they were just rebuking the children. I, I, I suspect the rebuke was to everybody that was involved in whatever was going on in bringing uh, children uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this word, they rebuked them, rebuked is a fairly strong word. It wasn't just shoo. It was probably, hey, hey, y'all are disturbing. You're, you're disturbing the Messiah. Don't, hey, hey, move on, move on. Let's, let's move it on along. And so Jesus is going to find this unacceptable. He's going to rebuke them. Their attitude was Jesus couldn't be bothered with children. The second thing, and I learned this Long before I went to seminary, we have one of the Sunday school gurus from Mecca, otherwise known as Nashville, home of Lifeway. Uh, but he came in to our little First Baptist Church there in Somerville, and I don't remember much about what he said, but he said this. Let me tell you what the attitude of people that are coming to your church or will come to your church is. If you care about my kids, I care about you. If you don't care about my kids, I don't care about you. And I think that's an absolute truth. I think it is a reality that we must care for the children. And so that brings us to this third part in verses 16 and 17. I just call it the unlikely citizens because what Jesus says about them is a bit shocking to us, particularly in view of who has been and will be accepted and those who had been and will be rejected. And so, look there at verse uh, 16. Jesus speaks uh, to these disciples. Again, Mark's account says Jesus was indignant. He was angry. He was Frustrated. Here's another example of you disciples don't get it. You, you're, you, 
do not understand the importance of what I'm doing. And so Mark notes that we might say Jesus was a bit ticked by what the disciples said and did. And so Jesus calls to them and he says three things to them. There's an exhortation, there is a prohibition, and there's an explanation, okay? There, there's an exhortation there first. Again, verse 16, the positive. Let the children come to me. That let is an imperative. That means he is emphatic. Now, you've ticked me off already with your attitude. Now, you let those children come to me. An emphatic statement from uh, our Lord. And then the negative, the prohibition. Don't hinder them. Don't put anything in their way. Do not frustrate them in any shape, form, or fashion in such a way that would inhibit, prohibit them from coming to me. If you'll remember back in chapter 17, in verse 2, Jesus gave a warning about causing what he identified as little ones, and I think that's probably a broader term than just children, but it certainly would encompass children. Simply put, what? You're better off dead than to cause one of his little ones to stumble. And so, again, we see that same kind of intensity, that same kind of warning. It is better to tie a heavy rock around your neck and go jump off the highest cliff into the deepest sea than to have any hindrance, to provide any hindrance for, Jesus, for children coming to Jesus. And then he offers this explanation, and, and, and certainly it's a bit of an enigma. For to such as these belong the kingdom. Now, I wish he had explained that in more detail, quite honestly. But who am I to even, for one nanosecond, question what's included in the Bible and what's left out? Who am I? But it would be nice, I would have to say. And so, again, he said that there is an analogy or a similarity between a child. So there's something about a child something about our understanding of a child that is analogous to those who would enter the kingdom of God, to those who would be saved, to those that would be uh, born again. So bring them, don't hinder them, and there is some type of relationship, an analogy, a correspondence between the reality of these children and those that would ultimately enter the kingdom. And he goes on in verse 17 with a further explanation. And it's really, I would say, a warning. Truly, again, we, amen, okay? A word to bring attention, okay? Pay attention. Verily, verily, truly, 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 I say to you. In other words, that's wake up and smell the coffee, Okay? Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now that's out my assumption. I'm going out on a limb here. 
Each and every individual under the sound of my voice wants to enter the kingdom of God. Nobody wants to be excluded from the kingdom of God. And so if Jesus speaks of something of a condition uh, by which that is necessary by, through which we would enter that kingdom, probably need to think about it. Probably need to, to think it through. What does he mean? And, and it is, a, I would say, a, a difficult thing to, to analyze. What do, do the, the two statements taken together, uh, parallel, uh, uh, kind of a positive and negative again, uh, getting at uh, uh, kind of what he, what he wants us to understand. For as to such belong the kingdom, positive, negative, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a child shall not enter it. In other words, salvation and the one who would be saved, the convert, must have something that is childlike about them. Now the question is, and it's the million dollar question, what is it that we are to have? If we would be saved, if we would enter that kingdom, if we would be born again, what are we to be? And sometimes you'll hear, and, and you know, most of us have probably heard multiple sermons from this text, well, we, we must be innocent. Like children are innocent. Now, in a technical way, and I believe in a biblical way, that's very wrong-handed because children are what? They're not, they're not innocent. They are guilty. They have been imputed the guilt of Adam from the first rebellion. They inherit that condition of sinfulness even before they actually act upon the impulse uh, to, to sin. So it's not innocence. Uh, it's, it's not, even if we say childlike faith or trust. Now, if, if you take a small child and you bring him into a room and, and you know, everybody's ooing and eyeing and, you know, oh, how cute and all, all of that kind of stuff. And a stranger, oh, let me, and the child recoils. Right? You ever seen that? They don't trust innately. But there's a sense, too, when they do trust, what? They trust completely, without reservation. Okay? So maybe, again, that, that, that's kind of a, a mixed bag uh, there. Um, possibly. Maybe children aren't confused thinking about the benefits of their own accomplishments. I mean, what, what follows here is the, the, the encounter with the rich young ruler. What complicated his being converted is that he thought highly of himself, of that which he had done and that which he had not done. And children have very little of that in their minds. And so I, I think the, the, the idea is, is, is simply that they come to the king. Those children came to the king. And so what must anyone do who would enter this kingdom 
who, what, does, what must anyone do in order to be saved? They must come to the king of the kingdom to receive permission to enter that kingdom. And so it's kind of difficult to, to know exactly what Jesus has in mind. It would be nice if he would have explained it to us. But I think there, there's something there that at least starts putting us on the right track as we begin to, again, we flesh out in certainly Luke's context who is well received into the kingdom and who is rejected by the king of that kingdom. And so, not encumbered by accomplishment and coming appropriately to the king. And so that's why Jesus said what? You bring them. You bring them. You bring them to me. And don't you dare put an obstacle in the way of a child. You bring them instead. And so, to be sure, this has been kind of the life verse, founding principles of all sorts of children's ministries and uh, all types of uh, uh, ways in which churches have, have attempted uh, to minister to children. But, but let me be sure you understand this. Whatever this means, it is not an apologetic for the design of a children's ministry in which the children are emotionally manipulated to make some type of superficial decision that proves ultimately to be ingenuine. And I can't tell you how many pastors and, and youth-type leaders and children's-type leaders, they will tell you, this, this is our goal, that we are going to create an environment, whether it's children's camp or PBS or Sunday school or youth retreat. And I'm not saying those things are bad. We do all of them. But our goal is not to manipulate a child or a teenager or anyone else into some type of a emotional, superficial type of response. I believe that the contemporary church, particularly in America, is littered not with the bodies but with the souls of those that have been put through the ringer of those types of ministries and with that type of philosophy. I was talking to Joey's Sunday school class this morning. And I will say it again to make sure you're clear. Uh, you may not understand what I'm saying. If you've never been mad about what I'm about to say, you may not understand it. But it's my deepest conviction that you must be born again. You must be regenerated to believe. That would get me fired in about 80% of the Southern Baptist churches. The, the, the chairman of the deacons would come walking up the aisle, shaking his finger. You can't say that here, boy. I believe that's biblical. And if you get it the other way around, then you wind up with the disaster that we've had in the evangelical church for at least my lifetime. And so, we bring people to Jesus so they would be regenerated and so that they will ultimately believe. They came to the king, they responded to his invitation, they came without preconceived expectations or pretension or demands. They found delight in the king. 
they trusted in his goodness. Well, let's, let's think through this a little bit further in terms of application. That's what happened. That's what was said. We've talked a little bit about what it means. What about applications and implications for us as we do ministry here at uh, North Clay Baptist Church? We must bring our children to Jesus and everyone else. Okay? It, that is our job is to bring people into the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that they would hear His free offer of salvation. We bring them. Whether, whether we go out on the street, and I, I was passed through downtown Charlottesville yesterday. There was a young man standing on the corner, street corner preaching. You, you can argue whether that's you know, uh, relevant or not. I, I couldn't really hear what he was saying, but at least he was attempting by taking the message to bring people to Jesus Christ. I'm sure that was his goal. And so we must also know that Jesus loves children. Jesus has a soft spot, in a sense, for children. But children must be converted, and they must be discipled. And so we must be intentional, we must be focused, we must, must place emphasis on that reality. And again, one of the things I said in Joey's class, Baptist rightfully, are often indicted. Well, you get all these people saved and you don't disciple them. Well, half of that is true. Do you know which half it is? We don't disciple them. We haven't gotten them saved more than likely. You can't disciple a lost person. An unregenerate person has no interest in discipleship. Oh, they might come hang out for a day or two, week or two, month or two, whatever. But eventually, yeah, you know, I don't need that. And so, children must be converted, and they must be discipled. And so, let's think, before we get into more implications, let me just step back into, we were talking again this morning. Sometimes we wish the Bible were a systematic theology instead of the way it was organized. Just look up topical. Okay, there's sin, there's hell, there's heaven, there's Jesus, there's gospel, there's salvation. You know, just look it up. It doesn't really work like that, but just... Children are a blessing from God. They are part of the mandate given at creation to be fruitful and multiply. They are a blessing there to be desired. Again, Heath read that passage earlier. Children from the moment of conception are image bearers. Jeremiah spoke of himself. Before I formed you in the womb, I didn't just know about you. I knew you. I knew you. I, I was intimately associated uh, with you. Children are not guiltless. They inherit the guilt of Adam. They are under condemnation. They came through Adam. This could, should create a sense of urgency for parents and the church. Jesus, uh, David wrote in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. From the moment I was conceived, I was sinful. Children are depraved. I hate to tell you that. That means in the totality of their being, their faculties are ruined, uh, their wills, their intellects, their, their affections. They're incapable in their natural state, in their, in their born state of pursuing and embracing saving faith. 
Now let me pause. Is the recorder working well? I want to be sure that you get this. Because I can remember years back, people were going around, Tim believes babies that die go to hell. Okay, I do not believe that. Okay? Now, I do not believe that the 60 million aborted fetuses or aborted babies are in hell. I believe they're in heaven. I believe those that die at young age are under a special covering of the grace of God. Now, I want to say to you, there's not a tremendous amount of evidence to argue it one way or the other biblically. A lot of people see it differently, but that's how I see it, okay? So, you know, you can go do like they did 18 years ago and start Googling stuff, you know, and lose your mind. But that is, did ever, can, would you repeat after me? Okay? But that doesn't mean they're innocent, that they're without guilt. They're sinful. And, and guys, let me tell you something. You know, I have the privilege of being a grandfather now, and I, I love those kids. I mean, they, they, are, they are a joy. But let me tell you something. They're sinners, and I see it. One of them did something to the other the other day, and one of them didn't like it, and he punched him in the belly. In the name of Jesus Christ. Okay. So, now, let's talk about the role of parents. And parents, it's primary. It is primary. You're the front line for the conversion of your children. I think the church in my lifetime has adapted the philosophy of modern education. Here's my kid giving back to him when he's housebroken. You take him to the professionals and you hand him or her off and you say, don't send him home until you straighten him, straighten him out. And our culture has done so well in the last 75 years. I mean, we have got everything so right, we need to mimic the culture, right? Because we're on target. That was cynical and sarcastic. Do you understand that? Okay. Our culture is in the trash. and has been. Okay. Now, so we want to train and encourage and empower and facilitate and assist parents in that front line as a staff, as the elders, and as a church. If, if you'll remember, and it's been a while since we've done a baby dedication. We ought to be maybe doing a bunch of them here in the next few months. <clears throat> Just got something hung in my throat there for a minute. But I usually say something. We as a church are standing before God and we're making a covenant, we're making a pledge before God to do what? To be the appropriate, the suitable church family for the nurture of this child. For, for, for the, 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 the trying to do everything within our power as a church to bring that child to the place, to the point of being born again. Y'all made that pledge. And I didn't, I didn't put, tie your hands behind your back and beat you with a stick to make you take it. So, first and foremost, read the Bible to your children. It is the imperishable seed of the new birth. Nothing replaces it. Read the Bible. Talk to them about biblical truth. Catechize your children. 
If you don't know what a catechism is, see me after church. Catechize your children. We think in questions. It's, it's a natural way that you get stuff in a kid's brain. It fits. Questions and answers. Catechize your children. Utilize Christian music. One of my grandchildren, after he learned, learned to sing Fat Bottom Girls, sang, started singing the doxology. Jude, by the time he was two years old, was singing in Christ alone. Wow. What truth. What truth. Not the pop junk, Jesus is my boyfriend, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that bull. Something substantial that says something essential and necessary about God and his gospel. Let them hear that type of music. Pray with them and pray for them. I often say, you know, when your kid turns 16, it'll turn you into a prayer warrior. Trust me. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Let me tell you something. You send a kid out with a set of car keys, and they've got a couple, three hours, and you're just like, that's an anxious time. Let me tell you something. You are far more powerless to bring the work of regeneration in the heart of a child then you are powerless to protect them out on the roads. You are dependent upon God. That should create in you a sense of urgency to pray for that child, for God to give to them the new birth, to continually bring about the means, primarily the gospel, the imperishable seed of the new birth, so that they will be born again. Bring them to church. Bring them to church. I've ran, I thought this was going to be a short sermon today. I wish I had time to give you the illustrations. But guard their hearts and minds. I, I, I've got to, I got to do this one. Recently, the state of Florida has passed some legislation or is trying to pass some legislation about certain destructive philosophies being introduced in public schools. Okay? And the moral revolution and the perverts of that state and across America has just absolutely lambasted Florida. The Walt Disney Company recently moved 2,000 jobs into Florida, of which they've already got thousands down there. And so the Walt Disney Company has been lambasted for not standing up for the trash of the moral revolutionaries, of the perverts. And... I, I, I don't know if this was, they caught him off his feet a little bit and he just thought quickly and came up with this or, or this was a strategy. But this is Walt Disney, folks. Okay? Uh, these, these are, I'm old enough, I, I thought they were the good guys. In response to why haven't you boycotted, taken a stand, called the governor, done whatever you would do, the CEO of Disney said, believes Disney is more effective at creating social change. Boy, what a euphemism. Through its movies and TV shows. He went on to cite some stating, these and all our diverse stories are our corporate statements and they're more powerful than any tweet or lobbying effort. And I think he's right. What you see in popular entertainment, popular media, is the normalization of perversion. And you must guard the hearts and minds 
baptism of children. The evangelism of children, this kind of is corollary to that, occurs in the, the realm of spiritual battle. That, that there's a battle going on for the souls of your children. And you see it in there, in the world of pop culture and entertainment. There are so many things that your child can be involved in. At some level, they may be good. But even things like sports in our age become all-consuming and ultimate. They become a danger. Certainly passive forms of, of pastimes, of, of entertainment, we've already said, dangerous. Bad ideas, bad philosophy, bad theology being promoted. And tragically, and I, I am a, a fan or have been a fan, thinking poor, public education is an important thing. But in science and health, public schools are teaching evolution, the normalization and distortion and perversion of biblical design. They're rewriting history. They're trying to, to get this thing called critical theory, which includes critical race theory. Don't have time to explain it. Look it up. It's an outright assault on Christianity. And so, parent, I say to you, and I say of myself to you, my goal for everyone that I ever have any type of influence with, I don't care if you're 80 or 8 or 8 months or whatever, my goal is that you be born again. That is the goal, that you be born again. Why do I speak the truth? Why do I preach the Bible? Well, it's the only thing I know to preach. I'm not creative enough to come up with anything better, and there is nothing better. But I preach it because it's powerful, and it's the only thing we've been given by which we will be saved. And so the mandate is, again, to bring up a child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so that's for parents and for the, for the church. We're not, we're not the first. We're not the primary. But we're just as necessary. We are just as essential into being a place where the truth is proclaimed. That As we gather together, we do read the Bible. We sing about Jesus. We pray and we explain uh, the Bible and we fellowship together. And these kids see all of these things and they're participants in these things. They learn by watching, both in the church and in the home. And I know we've been at an uncomfortable spot here at North Clay maybe for some folks. For some parents and, and some of our, our, our regular members that, that are not parents, one of the things that we did, we made a decision when we came out of COVID, that the best way for us to proceed for that time was to not do age-graded ministry. If you'll remember, we didn't even do Sunday school for quite some time. Didn't want to put people in a room, let them breathe all over each other and all that kind of stuff. But as we brought our children in, my theology and my philosophy have certainly matured and they've changed. You've heard me say for 18 and a half years, nothing has changed about my emphasizing the priority of the gathered body, of me saying that there is something unique that takes place when those that say we are North Clay Baptist Church, we are the people of God, we gather at this place at this time for the purpose of worship. And all of that includes that includes word and ordinance. All of these things, we gather for that purpose. There's something very unique that is not duplicatable. It is not reducible. Now hear me. Age-graded ministries are good. We do them. 
We do them every Sunday morning. We do them every Wednesday night. We do them at children's camp. We do them at VBS. We do all kinds of that. We're not against teaching appropriate age. But I believe, I believe the best way to disciple children, to bring them to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is in the context of the church. There's something here. Now, now think about it. If we're not going to worship with our children here, where are we going to worship with them? We send them out at Sunday school. We send them out Wednesday night. We send them out Sunday night. We send them to BBS. We send them to children's camp. Where's the family going to be together to worship? Where, where are parents going to influence their children in that realm? I, 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 I'm not going to say it's the only way. It just seems to be, me to be the most biblical way. The biblical way to instruct children. And that, that is a choice that so many of, their, of our parents have said, this is what we want to do. We want our children to gather in here with us. We want them to be under our watch care in that time. I'll say it, I'll make, I'll say it this way. Years ago, the late R.C. Sproul, whose theology has been perfected, all of his errors have been straightened out now. But he, being a Presbyterian, believed that the babies of believers should be baptized, be sprinkled, okay? His comment was this that he believed to not baptize your baby was to spiritually impoverish them. That is, that is a position consistent with his flawed, now perfected theology of baptism. Okay? Now you, you follow what I'm saying? His logic was, if it's the right thing to do for your children, if it's biblical, to not do it is to impoverish them. Well, let me tweak that just a little bit. To not bring your children and to gather together with the body of Christ as the gathered body under the preaching of the ordained man of God called to rightly divide the word of truth for the people of God, to not do that, I believe, is to spiritually impoverish your child. That is, it is to deny them something that is necessary. Am I saying all age graded is bad? No, sir. No, ma'am. I'm not saying there is a place, there is an appropriate place for that. But we believe, or I believe, we're doing a good thing. We're doing the right thing. That, that, that children, not only, listen, if you, gave, if you did 12 weeks of experiment, they go off with Josh and do the children's church, could they pass a test on the material Josh has given them and do better than after 12 weeks in here? Probably. Probably. Yeah. But we're talking about that which is supernatural we're talking about that the the thing that god does in the gathered body that hey i know you love your sunday school but let me tell you folks it is not a replacement for gathering in here it is not it is no substitute none of the other different things we do they may be really good we want to support them but this is this is the primary opportunity for the week and so to deny that to children I believe is to impoverish them. As, as di and I know some parents are having a difficult time with it, and, and I get that. But let me tell you something. There's a lot of churches that are stone dead silent this morning that would write a million-dollar check to anybody that would bring their young children in and let them cry and stomp and snort because you know what that is? It's a sign that the church has a future. 
and it is a healthy and it is a bright future. And so, I say that without indictment of anyone that might disagree with me. I, I, again, we can argue this. We can do all kinds of things about what's best and what's right and what's good and so forth. I'm telling you what I have come to the conclusion. I'm not calling people unbiblical that do it differently. I'm just saying it seems to me when you put together what it, we're trying to accomplish and, and the priority, the centrality of this diverse people of God. Again, not saying it is... There's of no use sending children out for age-graded men. I did not say that. You need to repeat that back to me. Tim did not say that, okay? But I'm saying we ought to have one opportunity for families to sit together under the Word of God. Again, I know a lot of what I say goes over their head, but you know what? Just three points today. What did Pastor Tim say about what was unexpected? What did Pastor Tim say about that which was unacceptable? What did Pastor Tim say about what was unlikely? There's your three catechism questions right there that you can talk about on the way home. I believe we're on the right track. Please be patient, parent, and others as we try to tease this out, get it, get it perfected so we are ministering to everyone. Okay? It is a challenge. Trust me, it's a challenge. But I, I, I'm deeply convinced that we're doing what honors God and what is the straightest line possible from a child who's conceived in iniquity and to the point in time in which God grants to them the new birth. Let's pray. Father, bless us as we continue our worship. I pray, God, that your truth would resonate with us, among us. God, where we need to be convicted, convict us. Where we need comfort, comfort us. Uh, Lord, where the challenge is before us, I pray that we would embrace uh, that challenge and that ultimately we indeed would be found faithful. And God, that we would see these precious children that you've entrusted to these families and then to this church, that we would see your magnificent, your marvelous, your mysterious work of regeneration playing out in life after life after life. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.